her life is finished. God's judgment is there on her future. So her race is run. It's done. It's the rest of us that uh, face daily life, and our judgment isn't finished yet so long as we draw breath. So we have to continue on. But uh, it is appointed to all men once to die, and Grace, I think, was 78, so she's lived a pretty long life and uh, is now awaiting a resurrection. So keep them in mind if you would. We have been facing some adversity over the last weeks and months and had even a, a big split in the congregation and various things. And I have sought how to deal with this. I've grappled with it back and forth and different possible solutions to uh, resolving some of the issues in, that have been presented. And I've kind of gone back and forth uh, between several different possibilities, uh, trying to figure out what God would have us do and what our attitude should be. And... Uh, some ways of looking at it have done nothing but knock my stomach up, <laughs> and I, through it all, have only found one place that I've been able to find some peace, uh, and that is thinking in a certain way, in a certain direction. And having gone through many, many hours of prayer and uh, some study and various things, grappling with, with issues, uh, I think I've found peace uh, in a certain place in the Bible. So if I have, uh, I want to share it with you so that we might all be on the same page and have the same understanding. Uh, some might consider me wishy-washy since I've gone back and forth between possible approaches, but it's not been that so much as it's been a desire to find out what God really wanted. How would he have me react and respond to any charges or any lawsuit possibilities or whatever? Uh, what would he have us do? That's all that matters to me. What I would do or what you would do uh, really is inconsequential. What would God have us to do? And, you know, I can think of this and I can think of that. Uh, and God doesn't sit on my shoulder and just, whisper in my ear and tell me everything to do. Nor does he always give dreams or visions or, you know, a more pointed way of telling us everything to do. Now, he does use those things some, and he's going to use them a lot here soon, as Joel 2 indicates. But that's not generally the way it's done. So how do we figure out what God would have us do in any given circumstance? Well, what has he given us? He doesn't sit on our shoulder, and he doesn't always give us dreams and visions. What does he give us? This book. This book is what he gives us. Here he has laid out for us our approach to any and all things that we might come to be acquainted with or face in life. The answers are in this book. And today we're going to go to a section of it which is very fundamental and foundational. When Christ was born on the earth, he grew up, and when he was about 30, he was baptized in the early part of Matthew, and then Satan led him up into the wilderness, uh, or led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. God uh, inspired him to go there, and Satan was waiting for it. So, uh, he went through that and won, and then he started his ministry from that time, it says in chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 17, and preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So uh, then he called his disciples, and he went about Galilee teaching and preaching, healing diseases, and so on, verse 23. And then he sat down with his disciples, who would later become apostles, and he delivered to them a message. Now, this is the longest message recorded in the scriptures that Christ ever gave. 
Uh, if you read through the rest of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find bits and pieces, parables, uh, stories that he told, specific instruction he gave about certain things. But this was a very foundational and fundamental time, and it may have been the very first time that he sat down with them and gave them a talk, a sermon. Uh, the only other one that even compares to this really is uh, John 14, or starting in 13, 14, 15, 16, uh, and so on, where he gave them a last instruction. It's not quite as long as the Sermon on the Mount, but, but it is longer, actually, if you include the prayer that he gave at the end of this discussion with the disciples, where he reviewed some of the things he had said before the Father. So there, there are his party, his, his, uh, his introductory sermon or talk to the disciples, and then there is his final one just before he died. So we need to look at that which is foundational and fundamental and see if there's any instruction here that we need to follow. Now let's recall that Christ was with the Father when they had the idea of creating mankind on the earth, and they knew essentially what would follow, that man would rebel against God as Satan and a third of the angels had done. So they pretty well knew and constructed the human mind to be a certain way. I mentioned that a few weeks ago, I think, where God could have created our minds any way he wanted to. But he made them a certain way so that by nature we are ungodly. Deceitful and desperately wicked is our nature. Only through teaching of parents, through uh, the culture around us, if it's righteous, do we learn to be anything but selfish and greedy <laughs> and so on? Because as little kids, we start out selfish and greedy. We have to be taught to share our toys. We have to be taught not to pull our brothers and sisters' hair and, or bite them and various things because that is our nature by and large. And Satan certainly acts on it to make it even worse. So, Christ was very, very familiar with the history of man from Adam until the time he was born. He saw all the evil. He was there when Noah's flood came, or God's flood in the time of Noah. And he saw the absolute wickedness that had occurred. He was there when... Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. In fact, he was the one that delivered it. He was the one who did those things in behalf of the Father. So he knew the history very, very well. Now, I don't know how much memory God might have given him of the things that had gone before when he was born and began to grow up on the face of the earth. Uh, we have no way of knowing if God imparted certain memory or whether he simply read the Old Testament Scriptures and learned and derived what history had been about through them. I don't know, but the point is he had great insight and perception from the spirit of his father. So he was quite familiar with our reactions, okay? He knew that when we are challenged, we like to fight. He knows that we get defensive very easily when we are attacked. He knows that we are full of vanity, greed, lust, jealousy, envy, lust, or covetousness, you name it. We're full of those negative works of the flesh. And this fruit of the Spirit comes to us as a gift, but the fruit itself that is produced is very, very hard to come by and hard work to accomplish and achieve so that we are filled with love and peace and joy and the other fruit of the Spirit. Those do not come easy to us. So let's understand as we approach Matthew 5 here that Christ understood our nature. And essentially everything he says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is contrary to your nature and mine. 
It is a foundational teaching to men who would become his apostles, whom he would put to lead and guide and direct and govern his church. So it had to be fund, foundational, fundamental. Now, I've, I've brought Matthew 5, 6, and 7 up uh, in terms of the adversities we've been facing, and people said, well, that's just personal. But when it comes to the church, you have to approach it differently to protect that which God gave, whether it be land or whatever. Now, think about that. Would God have the ministry in the church react differently than what you would as an individual to things that are brought against you? Wouldn't that be a double standard? And in fact, who was he preaching to here? The disciples, the apostles, to be. He is telling them, this is how you are to react. And that was before they even became apostles and before the New Testament church had begun. So this is his foundational, fundamental teaching to those who would later govern the church. Okay? Now, he said that multitudes had followed him in the end of chapter 4. But notice in chapter 5, it said, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, when he was set his disciples came to him. Now, the Protestants ignore that part of this story, and they say, well, Christ was there teaching to the multitudes. No, he wasn't. He saw the multitudes and went away and found a private place up in the mountains, and then when his disciples came to him, he taught them. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, not the multitudes. This was the foundation for his disciples that he had just called. This is fundamental to the way they would do things hereafter or thereafter. So what did he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, does that mean poor in the Holy Spirit? No, that means poor in the human spirit. Uh, what, what is the human spirit rich in? Pride, vanity, ego, and selfishness. And you meet a lot of people who are rich with that. They have a chip on their shoulder. You don't dare say anything to them because their ego and vanity and pride will arise. So he's saying here that we are to be poor in the human spirit or human way. Uh, it would be completely opposite of God to say we need to be poor in God's spirit. That we're, in, we're told to have <laughs> in great measure as much as is possible. So it is the human reaction, the human mind, the human emotions that we are to be poor in, that we are to put aside lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy. Uh, vanity, pride, and ego are not of God. They are of man. So he says if you put aside these human works of the flesh, these human attitudes, then the kingdom of heaven can be yours. So we are to get a, away from our natural reactions. are human reactions. When you face somebody who has something against you, what is your automatic thought? Self-protection, self-defense, you're wrong, vanity, pride, and ego. We do not like to be told. We do not like to be taught. We not, do not like to be told we're wrong. Herbert Armstrong used to say that a lot. Hardest thing for any human being to be told is that he's wrong. It just goes against our nature. I, I, he said that over and over and over again. I heard him over the years. We like to think we're right no matter what. <laughs> so it's, it's that that we have to get away from. So we have to analyze as we go through life, day by day. Is my reaction carnal or is it godly? How would Christ react to what I'm facing? 
how would he have reacted to what I to how I just reacted? And often we find we need to repent because we acted in a fleshly, selfish way. So that's the first thing he tells them. Then he says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Christ was a man of sorrows. He mourned at the things he saw in human society. It made him very, very sad the way people are. And it makes me sad when I look at me. And I get mournful. <laughs> I have to go to God daily and ask Him for forgiveness and mercy because my human nature is right there all the time ready to assert itself. It's just always there. And boy, does it boil over in a hurry. So we need to be sorrowful, to be mournful about the way we are and recognize it. Otherwise, how do we control it? How do we change it? How do we fix it? So these are attitudes, he says, that we need to have. They, the, the Protestant world calls them be attitudes. And really, if you break the word down, these are the attitudes we should be in. These are the attitudes to be. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, pride comes before a fall. God tells us in other scriptures, many of them, I'll not go there, that pride is a very evil thing and that we are not to have any pride. We are to be meek. Blessed are those which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, it is not our nature, again, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hunger and thirst for whatever it is our physical bodies and minds and emotions want. That's what we thirst for, and that's what we seek. Now, we are in a position here where, through understanding of God and His Spirit, we are struggling against that. But we live in a world out here that doesn't understand this, and they don't struggle against their nature. So do we, what do we have? Fornication and adultery and lying and cheating and stealing and murder and perversion and everything you can name. And our society is not getting better but getting worse as these things increase. So they're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They're hungering and thirsting for materiality and self-satisfaction and self-gratification and whatever subject you might bring up. So we have to be struggling for righteousness instead of carnality. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. He says later on that if they are not merciful, they won't get any. Somebody says here, if you are merciful, this is a very positive statement, then you can obtain mercy. So we, when we encounter others or come into contact with others, need to show mercy. It doesn't matter what they think of us or what they do to us or try to do to us or accuse us or anything else. He tells us that we need to find and show mercy, mercy to be merciful. Now, David prayed, be merciful on me, a sinner. And I think we all pray that because we all know that we sin and come short of the glory of God. We want God to have mercy on us, and we pray for his mercy, and we want to be merciful on ourselves, don't we? But it is not our nature to be merciful to others, especially if they're doing something that we think is harmful or that we dislike toward us. It is not in our nature to be merciful and to, to return good for evil. He'll talk about that later on in more detail. So mercy is one of the attitudes of God that we need to cultivate very deeply in our hearts and minds and emotions. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now we know from Jeremiah 17.9 that we are not pure in heart by nature. We are deceitful and desperately wicked. Not just wicked, but desperately so. Selfish to the core, if you will. So we have to purify our heart. And how does that happen? The washing of water by the Word. The Word of God is how we learn to be pure in heart. 
The Word of God is pure. It gives us the right attitudes, gives us the right approach, and it means we have to recognize that our nature is not pure, and our emotions and our motivations are not pure. They're selfish to the core. So we have to learn to be pure. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, peace is not a natural thing on earth. Satan came into the Garden of Eden. Well, Satan first disturbed the peace in the kingdom of God and took a third of the angels with it. There's where we, the people, started. It was when they had the rebellion against God who was in charge. And we, the people, as I said last week, continued in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve said, uh, you know, I think this, this fellow here that's talking to us is right. We, the people, know more than God. <laughs> uh, so they rebelled against God, and that didn't work out too well for them. And it has been man's history ever since then to say, we, the people, I, the person, know better than God. So we fight God, don't we? We fight the direction of Scripture because of our innate selfishness that is just there from birth. And we have to overcome it. That's what he told all the churches. You have to overcome this nature. So it is a daily, minute by minute, second by second, sec, second by second battle to overcome and to put down our human nature. And we have to be peacemakers because peace does not come automatically. Uh, you had war makers in the kingdom of heaven who disturbed the peace. You had Adam and Eve and disturbed the peace of the Garden of Eden. You had Cain disturb Abel's peace by killing him. And things had become so violent and so unpeaceful a thousand years approximately later that God destroyed all but eight people. Is peace a natural condition? How many wars have there been fought on the face of this earth over the last 6,000 years? How many wars are being fought right now as we sit here? There are various wars being fought all over the world because peace is not man's way. Selfishness, and I'll have mine first, and I'll have my way, is our natural way. So what did God say? He said, do just the opposite of that. Make peace, not war. Find a way to make peace, if at all possible, because if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, or be a child of God, you have to be a peacemaker. Not one who destroys peace through hate, accusation, bitterness, anger, or any of those human things that destroy peace. But you have to find ways, and I do, to make peace, if at all possible. And sometimes it's well nigh impossible, and in some cases it is impossible to make peace. I don't even try to make peace with Satan. Now, there's an impossible situation. I'm told to stay away from him, avoid him at all costs, to rebuke him and get rid of him. Don't try to make peace with Satan. God will handle Satan. You and I can't. We fight against those spiritual entities and powers that are there. So we don't even try to make peace there, but we're supposed to make peace, if at all possible, with human beings. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you're not necessarily blessed if you're persecuted for unrighteousness, uh, we pretty much deserve that when it happens, don't we? <laughs> but it's when we have done good or haven't done wrong and we're persecuted anyway that we come close to having and will have the kingdom of heaven. So we need to live correctly, do what we should do, and then if we get persecuted, uh, that counts for righteousness' sake. And Christ never did sin. And he was the most persecuted individual who ever lived on the face of the earth. So, if we do good, we will be persecuted. That is a guarantee. I could go to quite a few scriptures that show, if you obey God, it's going to create persecution. 
because people essentially are ungodly. And when they come up against godliness, they hate it. The carnal mind is enmity to God. Enmity. An enemy of God. So when you see people who will persecute, uh, they have enmity to truth, to knowledge, and to the right way. It is not God's way to persecute. We'll find it's not God's way to persecute for good or evil. Does God persecute us? No. Where do you find a place in the Bible where he persecutes us? He encourages us. He gives us instruction on how to live so that we might be blessed and be part of his kingdom. He chastens us when we sin, but that's not persecution. That's getting your hind end paddled because you did something you need paddled for. That's uh, not persecution from God. Persecution only comes from Satan and men. That's where it comes from. Whether you deserve it or not. When, God, when, we, des- when we might deserve it from God, there again, he chastens us. He doesn't persecute us. So, persecution is not a tool in a Christian's toolbox. It's not a tool we can use. Uh, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely or lying for my sake. So he says, if people lie about you, make lying accusations about you, then uh, you're blessed. (laughs) It's hard for us when we're reviled especially when we know we didn't do what we're being accused of. It's hard to accept. Now, if you did it and you know you did it, it's still hard to accept because we know we're wrong when we do wrong, and if somebody calls us on it, that isn't pleasant. But it's even harder when you didn't do it and are falsely accused. So he says here, uh, if they do accuse you falsely, But that's a blessing, because God will reward you. God will take care of you if you accept that. And was it Peter who said that if we take patiently those things that we did when we're accused, uh, that's no big deal. But when we are accused of things we didn't do, uh, and we take that patiently, then that's acceptable to God. So he's really kind of repeating what Christ said here, certainly in principle. So when we are falsely accused, consider it a blessing. Can we do that? That takes time. That takes prayer. When somebody accuses me falsely, it stirs emotions. And I have to work at it until I come to the point I can accept that as a blessing because God will bless me if I take it patiently. You see? That's what we have to do. Whether you did it or didn't do it, you have to take it patiently. And that's a blessing. So when people persecute you, and it's a lie, feel blessed. Notice he says in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. But he's talking to the apostles here, and they're going to, they weren't apostles yet, they were disciples again. But they were going to be apostles. And he's telling them that uh, they would be persecuted the same way the prophets before them had been persecuted. You might notice Zechariah 1, the first half of the chapter, is a warning to the end-time church that when God raises up the two witnesses and calls his remnant together, that they will be persecuted and stoned just like the prophets of old. So not only did they stone the prophets of old, they also stoned, some literally, the apostles of that day. Paul wasn't among this group, but he joined later and became an apostle. And they literally stoned him and left him to die with rocks. 
So what Christ is saying here has been true. And he says also, when I call my end time men as, their, as prophets, they also are going to, by spiritual Israel, the church, be stoned. He, said, he warns them not to do it. So it happens all the time. It happens in every age. So he told them, rejoice and be exceeding glad. Now, admitting you're blessed when you get persecuted or so on for doing good and are lied about, he says, not only be considered a blessing, but be but rejoice and be exceeding glad. Now, we have been accused of things in recent months, and it doesn't matter whether they're 100% true, 90%, 40%, 20%, or 0%. It doesn't matter what percentage of truth those accusations are in the long run. Our reaction is to be patient in any case. And if it is false, or almost false, or whatever, then we are to rejoice and be exceeding glad. How many of us spiritual giants have gotten there? <laughs> that's, that's a tough one. That is a tough one, to rejoice and be exceeding glad when you have a false accusation brought against you. But that's what Christ told the apostles to do. And this is instruction for us. It was written down for those upon whom the ends of the age have come. For great is your reward in heaven. What happens on this earth really is inconsequential, right? What does it matter? In a very, very few years from right now, the kingdom of God will be on the earth, and what we went through in this life will be of no consequence whatsoever. Look at Hebrews 11. At all of those people who were stoned, were cut in half, were burned, lived in caves and had little to eat, and various things that they went through in this life, and then they died. But God says they're going to be in the kingdom of God. And all of this that they went through here will mean nothing. So this life is it's just a training ground. It's just a period of time where we are told to come to have God's reactions instead of our own. That's all it amounts to. And if we can come to have enough of the Spirit of God to put aside our carnal reactions and react in a godly way, then our reward in heaven is going to be great. So there's one we can all work on. When we are persecuted, especially when it's a lie, that we rejoice and be exceeding glad. I'll have to admit, that isn't my first reaction when somebody comes up with something new that I supposedly have done. My first reaction is, well, where did they get that? You know, how did, where, who dreamed that one up? Isn't that our normal reaction when somebody accuses us? You bet it is. It's not supposed to be. So it may take a little time to get our emotions under control and rejoice because they did the prophets the same way. Verse 18, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. So if salt did not have saltiness to it, uh, they used it to put in the street uh, to walk on. They used it for seasoning only if it tasted like salt and made food saltier. And God has made us to be the salt of the earth, to help add flavor uh, and make something palatable. I like eggs in the morning, but I don't care much for them if they don't have a little salt on them. That, that salt just somehow brings out and enhances the flavor and just makes them so much better. Well, the world is supposed to be made better by you and me being here. God has called us out of the world. He said, you need to do right and think right and make the earth a little more palatable even to him. Because there are some who are seeking him on the face of the earth, and that makes what he has to take from mankind a little easier to handle. 
if there's some down here who are doing right. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Now, he's told us these attitudes we're supposed to have. If we have those attitudes, then we become a light to a darkened world that is full of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, selfishness, and so on. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick that gives light to all that are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. People get into Paul's writing and say, well, we don't have to have works. Well, what did Christ say here? He says, I, I want men to look at your good works and praise God for the good that they see and glorify God in heaven because of our example for what we do. Then he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. People misinterpret this and say, I didn't come to destroy it, I came to put, do away with it. What, when you do away with something, what do you do? You destroy it. No, he didn't come to destroy anything the law or the prophets said. He came to do it, to fulfill it, to live a life that reflected what the law and the prophets said. Nobody had up until he came. So he says, I, d I didn't come here to do away with it. I came here to make it happen, to fulfill it, to fill it up, to make sure the law is kept in the full meaning of the way God intended. And he will explain that here in a little bit on how he made it fuller, made it bigger, made it more binding, not less. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So he says that the law isn't going to be done away with and not one jot or one tittle will be done away with until it all be filled up, will be filled up in the kingdom of God. When people just their human nature, which is bad enough, but they'll have teachers that say, uh-uh, don't walk that way, here's the way to go. So that sin is going to be put away from us, and we'll have help to do it, or those who are here, as humans still will. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments, and tell teach men so, and we have a whole Protestant world teaching that you don't have to keep these commandments, he shall be called the least by those who are in the kingdom of heaven, is what is implied here. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Where did Peter and the others get the expression, not just the doers, the hearers of the law, but the doers shall be justified from this first teaching? He says, those who do and teach the commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, don't you? Uh, so I'm going to try my... But that's the way they're supposed to do it, not the opposite. For I say to you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees will not be in the kingdom of heaven, at least not in the first resurrection. Uh, they were on dangerous ground with what they knew and what they were doing, but perhaps they will still be in the second resurrection and come to have God's Spirit. They might be saved in the long run. But when the kingdom of heaven is set up on this earth, they're not going to be in it because, it says right here, they didn't have the level of righteousness required and that we have to do a lot better than they did. Well, they tried to keep the letter of the law. They didn't very well, but they at least they gave it lip service. Uh, we got to do better than that. Let's see what it, he says. He explains that now in verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment or condemnation. And that's what the commandment said. You shall not do murder. Don't kill. So you could think evil, you could think hatred, you could consider killing all you wanted to as long as you didn't do it, right? Now, that didn't mean your heart was right, but uh, still and all, if you didn't actually kill, uh, it wouldn't be held against you. 
But I say to you, now here's, here's a filling up of the law. Here's a greater understanding, an expansion, if you will, of the law. But I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Without cause there is not in the Greek. Because we think our cause is just. We, I can hate so-and-so because I have just cause. Well, sorry, but that wasn't in the Greek. The statement Christ made is, I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Why does he tell us to get over our anger by sundown? Why does he tell us that his anger is slow to come and is over very quickly? Because that's the way we are to be. We are not to retain anger. But it's human to do that. People retain anger for a day, for a week, for a month, for a year. They retain it till they go into the coffin. Husbands and wives retain anger against each other. All you have to do is bring up something that happened 30, 40 years ago, and boy, the, you'll see the hackles rise, because it ain't over. <laughs> Just don't bring it up, because you know what kind of reaction you're going to get. Is this true or false? Don't be angry with your brother. If you do get angry, you're supposed to get over it, not retain it. Anger is not a way to live. It doesn't make any difference what people do to us. We are not to retain anger against them. What did Christ say? Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Did Stephen follow Christ's example? He gave a sermon and told the people there what kind of rats they were, and they started stoning him, and he said, Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Christ's own words. Did he get angry at people who were throwing rocks at him? No. We get angry when they throw verbal rocks at us. We react carnally, selfishly, defensively. No. Forgive them, Father. They don't really know what they're doing. If we have somebody who is angry at us, they are violating God's law by being angry. And they don't really know what they're doing because they're reacting emotionally instead of logically, and they're reacting carnally instead of spiritually. Otherwise, the anger would go away. Because you're in danger of the judgment if you're angry with your brother. He goes on and elucidates further. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. That means vain fellow or basically worthless, of, of little worth. We are not to look at others that way. We are told we should esteem others highly, not put them down or look down upon them or be condescending to them or, or put a worthless value on them. So if we do that, we're in danger, danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of Gehenna fire. Someone who says, you have no value. We cannot judge people that way or condemn them in that way. It is not our judgment to make. God is your judge. God is my judge. And any who come against us, he is their judge. So we cannot condemn anyone, and they should not condemn us either. It just isn't God's way. It is his judgment. Vengeance is mine, says the Eternal. It's not ours. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, your prayer, your offering, your tithe, whether it be a physical or a spiritual gift that you bring to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. He says, when you go to God in prayer, and you get on your knees to pray that God bless you and help you and give you the things that you want and to kill your enemies for you or whatever. When you go before God to make whatever plea it is that you want to make before God, and you remember 
that your brother has something against you. Leave there your gift before the altar. Get up off your knees and go do something. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He says, don't even make your prayer if you are holding something against your brother. Don't even, don't even bother to make your prayer, he says. Get up off your knees and go try your best to fix it or reconcile it. Now, them's fighting words to our human nature. We don't want to go there. That isn't what we want to do. We want to stay there on our knees and pray for deliverance for ourselves. We don't want to go fix whatever we can fix. Now, you know what you have to do to fix things sometimes? You have to give. If you're in the get mode, you're not going to reconcile anything. So in order to reconcile, we have to give. Mankind is contrary to God. Mankind is prone to sin. Now, what did Christ do? He came to the earth and gave. He gave of himself. He gave of his life. He was persecuted, tormented, tortured, and killed in order to make reconciliation. That's how far he was willing to go to reconcile with his brothers because we are called his brothers. Are we willing to die for each other? Are we willing to die for another human being? Christ was. How much are we willing to give to reconcile something? Now, this is, this is basic fundamental religion here. Are we supposed to get defensive and oppose and fight for what's mine? Or are we what do to do whatever we can to reconcile? And you've got to give to reconcile. You can't take and get anywhere. That's against my nature. Is it against yours? You bet it is. That's why he's telling us this. All right, let's go on. He says even more. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him. Lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be cast into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall, not, you shall by no means come out thence till you have paid the uttermost farthing. Now, if you have an adversary, does it matter whether your adversary is right or wrong? Does it matter whether his accusation or his case is right or wrong? <laughs> Doesn't look like it to me. What does it say? Agree with him. Come to some answer. Come to a reconciliation. Come to an agreement before you ever get to court. Now, if he's mad, and he thinks you're wrong, or you've done something to him, or you've hurt him in some way, and he wants to take you to court, whether it be a financial issue or some other problem or sin, or for something he thinks you've done, he is mad. And he does not want to give in, and he wants to sue your socks off. Now, does God say to go to court and fight? No. He says you solve it ahead of time. Before you ever get to court, you fix it. Again, an attitude of take or get, or I'm right and you're wrong and I will have my way, is not godly. That's not what he says to do. He says, if at all possible, I think is implied here, you settle it before he ever gets you to court. That means you're going to have to give. Now, how did, how did Christ do when they took him to court? Did he defend himself? Did he say they're lying about me? No, go back and read Isaiah 53. He spoke not a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't defend himself at all. 
That's tough. <laughs> you know, that's tough. By nature, we want to defend ourselves. By nature, we want to get what we think is right. That's our nature. God said, don't go there. Don't be that way. Who was our example that we were to follow in his footsteps? To walk as he walked. Christ Emmanuel. What did he do? You know, we've been accused, you've been accused, I've been accused all through my life of various things. How many times from the time I was running, crawling around in diapers have I tried to defend myself when I was accused of whatever? I mean, it starts early, doesn't it? I didn't do it. She did it. It's always your brother's or sister's fault, wasn't it? How many parents have tried to sort out who did what? And all the kids are lying. Trying to cover their behind. Well, you've got to swat their behind. No, it's our nature to defend ourselves. Was it Christ's nature to defend himself? He had human nature, did he not? He was tempted in all points like as we are. So he wanted to defend himself. His whole being, his whole nature, everything about him cried out to say, I didn't do it. I didn't do these things. I'm here dying for the rest of you sinners. That was his nature. He didn't give in to it. He didn't defend himself. Now, I've tried off and on through my life, mostly on, to defend myself. And so have you, no matter what the charges were. Is that the way we're supposed to live? Now, what he told the apostles. We don't defend ourselves. We trust God to take care of us. Now, Moses and the Israelites when they stood at the edge of the Red Sea, apparently had a mountain on either side, water in front of them, and the Egyptian army or Mitzrayim's army behind them. Now there's a time to be scared. There's a time to fear. There's a time to realize I'm dead. <laughs> By everything that you could see around you, you thought you were dead. What were they told? Stand still and see the salvation of the eternal. I told you last week what God is going to do about the rebellion at Anatoth. He said he's going to put them to the sword and famine, and there will be no remnant of them left. That's his judgment. And I showed you that that's an end-time prophecy at the end of chapter 32 of Jeremiah. So what do we got to worry about? What if we lost all this land? Maybe we will, maybe we won't. I don't know. Israel had the land of Goshen, didn't it? They gave it up to go do something different. We gave up our homes back wherever we came from to come out here to do something for God. And I believe he's going to use us if we have the right attitude, the attitudes we're talking about here today. He'll use us for his purpose, to be salt of the earth and the light on a hill. Do we believe he can take care of us? Should we fight tooth, toenail, and claw to get what we think is right and what we think is ours? Or do we try to make peace? Do we try to reconcile? Do we give some? Do I defend myself? Or do I say, hey, you can believe what you want to believe. That's up to you. As George says, his mother used to tell him, you can't... Uh, you can't defend a lie. You can only keep it from being true. <laughs> All we can do is obey God the best we can, and if people, people are going to believe whatever people want to believe. That's up to them. But we need to trust in God to take care of us. Isn't that what all those people listed in Hebrews 11 did? They trusted in God to take care of them. So, I think he tells us to bend over backward and make peace if at all possible, whatever we need to do to make peace. That's what he seems to be saying to me.
And the only time I find peace is when I read these words and say, that's what I need to do. If I, talk, if I think about fighting and clawing and scratching, then I get my tummy upset. When I read these words and I say, hey, just do like Christ did, I find peace. And we've been going through this now for weeks and months, and that's the only way I find peace. So I'm going to try to do what he says here, in whatever way I can. Let's see, what time is it getting to be? We're getting close. Verse 27, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So in the Old Testament, as long as you didn't actually physically commit adultery, you could not be held accountable. Now he says, it's tougher than that. You're not even supposed to think it now. Uh, that's a lot harder task. And if your right eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that they should hold, uh, throw your whole body, should be cast into Gehenna fire. Whatever it is about us that is ungodly needs to be taken away. He uses a physical eye uh, because he says it's not just your hands or other body parts that offend, it's your eye that lusts. Uh, you've got to take that lust out of your eye. You've got to change the mind and the thinking that is behind the eye. If your right hand offends you, Cut it off and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into Gehenna fire. That doesn't mean cut your right hand off physically, but what does your right hand do if you're right-handed? It, it's what steals. It's what takes. It's what misuses. It's what abuses. It's the things you do. Your brain is supposed to control your hand and not let it do those things. So what he says, whatever your, your hand is doing out there, you need to stop it, to, to take that away from it, not let that happen anymore. The mind, the brain, is in your head, and the head is supposed to control the rest of your body parts. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about. It says that God has put us in the body as he so chose, and those body parts are supposed to perform service for that body in whatever way they were made. If God made you a toe or a foot, you're supposed to make, help give balance and help the body get around. If you're the hands or the fingers, you're supposed to help coordinate what the brain tells you and fulfill your part of the body properly. And then he goes on to say, and people ignore that when they write goofy papers about government, but right after that he says, he gives first apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, pastors, and teachers for helping the body function properly, to govern over it. Christ is a spiritual head, and he puts men in charge as the physical head to govern the spiritual body, the church. You have to read the whole chapter, not just the parts you like, about all the feet and toes need to stand up and say, we the people are going to rule. You're not supposed to be ruled by your toenails or your toes or your fingers. You're supposed to be ruled by your head that tells your fingers and toes what to do. That's the way God's government works. Does your elbow rule you? What rules you? Does your groin rule you? He's been talking about that. Or does your head? Does your brain? God's government is from the top down. God's government will be throughout eternity from the Father and the Son. And when we, the people, rise up, they get cast out of heaven. And when they rose up against Moses, they got cast out of Israel, down into the ground. They got leprosy, which kind of helped change their mind, or whatever. That's the whole Bible story. Maybe I shouldn't have gotten into all that, but we just got a goofy paper, a heretical paper, about government. No, whatever your eye does, it's wrong, or your hand does, it's wrong. Your brain's supposed to control that and not let it go there anymore. It has been said, verse 31, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. 
But I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of porneia, fornication is translated here, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. Now, Herbert Armstrong understood this as por- the fornication, that porneia in the Greek only was premarital fornication, or sex before marriage. And therefore, he said, any kind of divorce was wrong. Well, God divorced Israel for adultery, not fornication, but for adultery against him, spiritual adultery, running with other people and making alliances with foreign nations. Uh, And I found in the book of Revelation an example where the word porneia is used, and it's talking about Jezebel, and it says she committed porneia. Well, she was a married woman, and she committed adultery, not fornication. So, God says there that porneia includes adultery, so adultery is grounds for divorce. Herbert Armstrong never did understand that, but there's a not just an argument over Greek words, but an example where porneia, and the word is used, porneia, by John in the book of Revelation, was adultery by Jezebel, a married woman. So, adultery is grounds for divorce. Uh, No matter what you've been taught, that's the Bible example. And the word porneia is used here as well. So, let's not get more into that subject, but uh, still in all, what he's saying here is it's not like it was back in, uh, where was it, uh, Exodus 24, where it says they could divorce people for any cause. And Moses allowed it because of the hardness of their hearts. And here he says, a divorce can't be allowed unless there's a serious sin involved. You can't just get rid of somebody because you don't like them anymore, or because they got old and wrinkled, or, or, or decrepit, or sick, or, you know, whatever. You can't just get rid of somebody for any reason, or because you're having a midlife crisis and you need a convertible and a blonde, or whatever. Uh, those, those don't count. Now, if you get your convertible and you're blonde and your wife decides to divorce you for adultery, then she's justified, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, that coin has two sides. Uh, again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time, you shall not forswear yourself, but shall perform unto the eternal your oaths. But I say to you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. You might dye it, but you're not going to make it naturally turn. But let your communication be yes, yes, or no, and no. For whatsoever is more than these comes of evil. In other words, we can make pretense, and we can lie, and we can say this, and we can say that, But what's the bottom line? Yes or no? Um, People protest too much sometimes. You know, they'll try to make their case, and they'll swear. But no, he says, just, just be honest, straightforward. Yes is yes, and no is no. Let's finish it up. Uh, well, let's uh, let's stop right there for today. We're, we're out of time anyway, and it gets into another section along the lines of what we're already talking about and what our reaction should be when we face adversity and when we face humans and human nature. Because in this life, what do we face? We face spiritual entities and powers that we have to deal with and rebuke in the name of Christ who is stronger than they. And other than that, We face human beings every day on the face of the earth, whether in church, whether at work, whether in family, whether in friends. We have relationships, interactions at least, with people. And what Christ is explaining here in this is the fundamental reactions that we ought to have as Christians toward other people. He's telling the apostles, this is the way to live. And he's telling them that everything he says here is against their normal reactions as human beings. You know, you can say, well, my gut tells me this. Well, what does God's Word tell you? 
your gut isn't always right, and your brain isn't right either, and your human heart and emotions are not right either. That's why Christ had to tell these guys who are going to teach the church and set an example for the world what their reactions ought to be. So we need to be paying very, very close attention to Christ and what he says when we face relationship difficulties with human beings on the face of this earth. Let's be sure that we react as Christ did react, or let me put it first, react as he told us to react here, and then react as he did react at the end when he was accused and answered not a word, but was slaughtered. It is better, 1 Corinthians 6 says, to take wrong or be defrauded than to get your own way. That's Bible. That's what Paul understood from what Christ taught him. It's better to be done wrong and defrauded than it is to be angry and full of animosity and fight and hate and bitterness and going to court and all those things. We need to be Christian. So let's pay attention to what Christ tells us. And if we do it his way, hey, it doesn't matter what happens in this life. It really doesn't matter what happens in this life. How many times did he tell us here about a reward in heaven? That's all that counts. What people do to us here on this earth, doesn't matter. They can kill us, doesn't matter. That's what they did to the prophets before us, and that's what they're going to do here at the end. Says the last two prophets are going to be killed. So they know where they're headed. What difference does it make? They're going to rise in the resurrection. That's all that matters. So let's, let's have God's approach and attitude, not our human nat natural reactions. And it takes prayer, it takes study, and it takes determination to do as Christ did. And Stephen followed his advice. Forgive them, Father. They're throwing rocks at me. They don't know what they're doing. And then he died.